0: He doesn't ask us to do things. What's he do? He commands us. That's what God does. God commands us. And now you can relax. you figured out what's going on here. I'm going to tell you to do something because I'm preaching to you and it's my job to tell you what God requires. And if that's what you think, generally you're right. I am going to tell you to do something, but I'm not going to leave you with work to do and with no tools to do it. I want you to know how to go about the work, not just have knowledge that there's work to be done. That's the way God communicates with us. He commands us to do certain things, to abstain from others. But that's not where he stops communicating. That's just where we stop listening. So as an example, how about the first five commandments of the ten commandments? What are they? How many of you think you could list them off, the first five commandments, if you if you were given opportunity? Raise your hand. I can do it. Now, either some of you are shy or most of you are like me and probably couldn't have done it had you not studied them. But for those of you who could do it, what would you say? You'd say... No other gods, no graven images. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Abram's whispering them back to me in case I don't know them. <laughs> right? Keep the Sabbath holy and honor your father and mother. Is that his correct list? Is that the list? Abram's going, up. Yeah, that's a list. <laughs> and it is a list. And we, and we move on. We say, that's it. That's the first five commandments. I could tell you the next five commandments if you asked me. That's how good I am. But I'll tell you what, if you were to open up to Exodus 20, if you were to go there and you were to look in verse one, you'd find that that it starts out by God saying he spoke all of these words to them. And what I just read to you is not all of those words. It's not all of them at all. So what we know are the commands of God, but we don't know why we should obey them. Okay. my point is this when God gives us commands. He doesn't leave us there. He doesn't just give us commands, but he tells us why we must obey them, why we have to do what he commands. All throughout the Bible, you're going to find words like therefore, so that, that, because, for. And what these words are are called hinge words, hinge words. And what, that, what they do is open up the text to us. They tell us what the, te- what the text is about. They come between the commands of Scripture and between the reasons why we should obey them. So with that backdrop, let's take a closer look at the first five commandments. There's a declaration, there's a statement of truth, and there's a re- and there's a command. Do this because of this. The first commandment, I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's not a command. That's a truth. God is telling them, I have done this now because of that, so that. This is true. You shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. And the obvious question is why? Why shouldn't I do that? It's not whether I want to do it. It's just why, well, why shouldn't I? And the Lord says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. The third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain again. Well, why not? For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What's that mean? What's the Sabbath and how do you keep it holy? This is what a Sabbath is its a, the Lord says six days you shall labor you should and do all your work but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God in it you shall do no work you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle nor your nor your stranger who is within your gates why can't we work on the sixth day on the seventh day why can't we because in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them and he rested the seventh day Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he hallowed it. And the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Why? That your days may be long upon the land in which the Lord your God is giving you. That's the first five commandments. Now, I'll ask my question again. For those of you who raised your hand and said, I, could, I know the first five commandments, I can tell you. Do you know them? Do you know the first five commandments? And my guess is the answer is no. You you know the commandments, but you don't know why we're to obey them. And without the reasons why we're supposed to obey the commands of God, we're completely unable unable to obey them. We don't know why we should. We don't know that they're there for our protection. We don't know why we should obey. So what do we do? We don't obey. The way God communicates to us in the first table of the law, and the first five commandments, is the way he communicates with us throughout the whole Bible. He gives us commands and he gives us um, the reasons why we need to obey him. He doesn't just give us bare commands and tell us, do this, do this, do that, don't do that. He does those things. He says, do this because, so that. All right? The Lord bends down to us in our weakness because he's kind and because he's loving toward us. And he tells us why we should obey him. He urges us to obedience by warning us by making promises to us and by telling us what the outcome of our disobedience will be. The Lord knows our frame and he leads us accordingly. So as we come to our text this morning, remember that God does require things of us. He actually does. But he gives us all that we need for life and for godliness through the true knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. And one more thing. If you have any inclinations to think that God only communicates with us in this way, only communicate communicated this way during the Old Testament, that he gave commands during the Old Testament, and now we're in the New Testament and he doesn't do that anymore, I'd remind you of Ephesians 6. For those of you who have children, you know exactly what I'm going to say. Stephen told me when we were pregnant with our first son, when my wife was pregnant with our first son, (laughs) he said, said, "This, this is the first thing you should make your children memorize. Ephesians 6. And what's Ephesians 6 say? It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right it goes on to say, to restate the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. For this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So if you go up to my son, my oldest son, not my nine-month-old, and you say, why are you supposed to honor your father and mother? He'll look at you and he'll say, so that it will go well with me and that I'll live long on the earth. And if you look at him and you ask him and say, do you want it to go well with you? Do you want to live long on the earth? He'll say yes. <laughs> right? How many of you heard what Judah said when Jody, when Jody was um, reading from Psalm 23, right? What did he say? He said, Jody stands up there and he says, Yea, I fear not. I, miss, I don't actually know the quotation. Judah probably has it memorized and I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I fear not, though anything can assail me. Because why? Because the Lord is with me. And then what's his son say? His son says, that's from Psalm 23. <laughs> so for those of you on this side who didn't hear what Judah said, and Judah's what, three? This little boy, he knows the promises of God, not just the commandments, and he knows where they come from. Not that he's just not, not that he's called not to fear, but that he's not to fear because God is with him. And it's the same with us. God is with us. Now turn with me to 2 Corinthians 4, verses 13 to 18, and read with me the word of God. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed; therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with him and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace that is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, now note, therefore, hinge word, because this is true. This is what I this is what happens. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This text comes right after Paul tells the Corinthians about all the trials that he's had to endure, all the things that he's gone through, all the sufferings he's had to endure for the sake of Christ. And earlier in the chapter, in verse 8, he picks up and he says, He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that and the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. Now, why is Paul telling us this? Is he telling us how bad his life is so that we'll feel sorry for him? That's not why Paul's telling us this. He doesn't want our pity. He's teaching us. And there's things for us to learn from, from Paul's sufferings. He tells us how he's been afflicted, but not crushed, perplexed, but not given to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And the first thing that we need to know is that having the same spirit of faith as Paul, right? Having the same, it's not up there, having the same spirit of faith as Paul, that he's our example. That what he does is what we're called to do. So if he suffered and he was afflicted and perplexed, and struck down and persecuted, he's not, it's not a, a fine story that has no application to us. He's setting an example for us. That's the first thing that we need to learn, is that Paul's our example because we have the same faith as him. Man can afflict us and perplex us and persecute us and strike us down. But man cannot crush us. He can't make us despair. Man can't forsake us or destroy us. Those things belong to God. Only he can do them. So what's actually worse? What's actually worse? Being persecuted or being forsaken? Paul was persecuted. Christ was forsaken, right? On the cross. My Lord and my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So what's worse? In your eyes, to go through what Paul went through or to go through what Christ went through? Paul was afflicted and persecuted by man. Christ was, pers- was forsaken by God. What about being struck down, being killed versus being destroyed? We think death, being killed is the worst thing. It's as bad as it could get. But Paul says being destroyed is worse. So when I give you these choices, when I say persecution or being um, it's forsaken, struck down or being destroyed, you go, I don't like the question. I don't like any of the options. I have a different option. I want to live happily ever after. And I don't want to be persecuted and I don't want to be forsaken. I don't want to be struck down and I don't want to be destroyed. So I have a question for you. I'm going to quote the Good Shepherd band. In one of their songs it says, it's good for Paul and Silas, but it's not good enough for us. So is it good enough for you? Is suffering good enough for you? Paul said he believed and therefore, because he believed, he spoke. Do we believe and therefore speak? And at this point, you don't have the privilege of being up here and seeing your faces, but you all have to look on your face like I have a look on my face when someone asks that question. Do you believe and therefore speak? And you all go, uh, no. No, actually, I don't. But I want you to remember what I said earlier. Remember in the very beginning, he said, Aha, I know what you're doing. You're going to tell us to do something. You're going to tell me I have to obey God in some particular way. And here we are, right? If you're tracking, you know that I'm telling you that you need to suffer. That Christians suffer, right? All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will what? They'll be persecuted. So persecution, suffering, is part of the Christian life. It's not an option. So I have brought something to light. Something that God calls us to do. And here we sit. Here we all are going But I can't. It's too hard. It's impossible. That's how we feel. So is it actually impossible? Is suffering, enduring suffering actually impossible? Is it beyond us? And we all know actually that the answer is no. It's not impossible. So why don't we do it? Why don't we suffer for Christ? Paul suffered for Christ. He set out an example for us. So why don't we do it? I'm convinced the reason that we don't suffer for Christ is the same reason that we Know the Ten Commandments, but we don't really know the Ten Commandments. You know that you know the Ten Commandments and that you know what God calls you to do or not do, but you don't know why. And it's the same with suffering. You know that God calls you to suffer, but you don't know why he's calling you to suffer. Our ears are tuned in to what God requires of us, but not to the reasons why we need to obey them. So what I want is for you to tune in. I want you to listen. Because Paul shows us why he's willing to suffer. He tells us. He says that God, that he's willing to suffer because God, who raised the Lord Jesus, will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you, the Corinthians. That's why he's willing to suffer. Because God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, if you're tracking, you're thinking, well, I really. before I said that, you're thinking, I want you to tell me why I'm supposed to suffer. I'm interested. I want to know what the big deal is. And then I tell you, Jesus was raised from the dead. That's why he suffered. And you go, well, that's not helpful. I thought you were going to tell me something I didn't know. Something so basic as Jesus was raised from the dead, everyone knows that, except the Sadducees, right? That's why they're sad, you see. So what's the resurrection? What is it? Let me ask it this way. If you had to pick one Sunday of the year, just one, where there's more people in church than any other Sunday of the year. What is it? More than Christmas? More than Christmas. More than Christmas. The reason is because, it's, what is Easter? It's the celebration of Christ's resurrection. Not his death, right? Not his burial, but his resurrection. And on Easter, what do we say to each other? We walk around and instead of saying, hi, how are you doing? What do we say? We say, he is risen. And the person looks back and they say, he is risen. And we have big smiles on our face. And we sing the hallelujah chorus. And it's wonderful. It's beautiful. So why do we only think about the resurrection once a year? The resurrection is central to our faith. It's the very reason that our faith exists. Why is, and do you know why the resurrection is central? Why, it's the, why without it our whole faith is Is pointless and useless it doesn't mean anything it's because through the resurrection god made provision for us it's the only provision that god made for us to be reconciled to him that's it there's no other way there's no other way for you to be reconciled to god except through the resurrection of jesus christ paul says in first corinthians 15 if christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain your faith is also in vain your faith is also in vain if Christ hasn't been resurrected. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, We, above all men, are most to be pitied. What Paul's saying here is that if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then we've believed in vain. Our faith is worthless and we have no hope because we're still in our sins. And there's no way to get out of them. The resurrection is the center of our faith. It's the reason for our faith. If there's no resurrection, then nothing nothing else we do matters. It just doesn't matter. It's pointless. It's a waste of time. The reason I'm spending so much time on this, talking about the resurrection, you will read the text and you go, where's the resurrection? The reason that I'm spending so much time is because the resurrection's there. In verse 13 and 14, Paul says, he believes, therefore he speaks, because he knows that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. The resurrection is what Paul believes in. The resurrection is Paul's only hope in this world and the world to come. And having the same spirit of faith as Paul, the resurrection is our only hope in this world and the world to come. By now you're thinking, all right, I get it. The resurrection, you've made a bigger deal out of it than I've thought of in the past. I get it. It's important. It's, It's real important. Without it, there's nothing else. I believe in the resurrection. So what are we resurrected to? Is resurrection the end? That you'll be resurrected. Go obey God because you'll be resurrected. It is true. You will be resurrected. But what are you resurrected to? What you're resurrected to is the heaven. The resurrection is not the end. It's the means to the end. And the end is heaven. Eternal communion with the God that made us. And what did God make us for? Right? First catechism question. What's the chief end of man? Why did he make us? so that we would glorify him and enjoy him forever. And where will you enjoy him but in heaven? Fully. You'll enjoy him here. You'll enjoy him in heaven fully. <clears throat> the resurrection is the key that opens heaven's gate to us. And that's what Paul really looks forward to. He looks forward to heaven, communion with the Father. That's his hope. That's his motivation for sufferings, for enduring his sufferings. It's heaven that keeps him from losing heart, from shrinking back. So what is heaven? I say heaven's supposed to motivate you to do things you can't conceive of doing. So what is heaven? Heaven's described in a lot of ways. A few ways it's described is, is as an inheritance, as, an, as eternal rest from our sin. It's the place where all pain and tears will cease. There won't be any more. In Isaiah 25, 8, the Lord says, He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he'll remove the reproach of his people from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. He's made promises to us, and that's what he promises to us in heaven. And these promises are not for just for the Corinthians or for the people who really suffer. Those promises are for his children. They're for Christians, for all Christians. They're for his children, the sheep of his pasture. There's a whole lot more that could be said about heaven, the ways it could be described and what it's going to be like. But even with these just, just these few descriptions, an inheritance, rest from sin, no more death, no more tears, no more reproach. These are all promises that God's made to us. What do you do with those promises? Do you believe them? Do you believe that they're for you? Do you agree with Paul wholeheartedly when Paul says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain? Is the presence of the Lord the sweetest thing that you can imagine? More valuable than anything? Do you agree that one day in his courts is better than thousands elsewhere? Do you think of heaven like this? Do we even think of heaven, let alone think of it like this? All I've done is tell you what Scripture says very briefly about heaven and what it is for us. Do we think of heaven like this? Or do we think that heaven is just something to know about but never to dwell on because we don't want to be presumptuous and take for granted something that's not actually ours? Listen to Paul. If you go if you go to an online search engine, a Bible online search engine, and you type in heaven and you search Paul's epistles, you'll find that his epistles along with the rest of the Bible, are littered with talk of heaven through the resurrection. It's just littered with it. It's everywhere. And this is from Paul, right? So who's Paul? Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles, or better, the chief of sinners. And he had, he had strong hope, firm conviction that heaven was his. And he suffered greatly because he, because he hoped in heaven. Paul had great hope because he had great faith. Right? You all know the stuff that Paul went through. It's accounted for shipwrecked, beaten, in jail, slandered, chased out of cities, often without food and drink, with nothing. And, what do, and we look at that and we think, "That's crazy. I couldn't do that. I might like if I said that, I might lose my job. I couldn't do that." If you compare what, we're, what we consider too great of suffering, too much for us to endure, to what Paul has. It doesn't even compare. And then you hear how Paul describes his affliction. He says it's momentary light affliction. It it doesn't even matter. It's nothing. Right? He says momentary light affliction is producing what? All the stuff he's going through produces what? An eternal weight of glory. Far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And what is faith but the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen? Heaven is a real place. It's where Jesus ascended to. And when He ascended, before He ascended, right after the Last Supper, He said, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I won't lie to you. There's a place called heaven where there's rest from sin and from pain and tears. And when you look at what Paul went through and the sufferings of his life, he says, compared to heaven, it's nothing. It's nothing. If he was a boxing match, you'd throw in the towel and say, it's not even a fair fight. Stop the fight. It's not even fair. So that's Paul. I want to tell you another story of another man who's gone before us. And his name's Caleb. And most of you probably know the, know Caleb and know his story. But for those of you who don't, and even if you do, you need to hear it again. Because it's amazing. And what, who Caleb is, was a guy who was around during Moses' time. So way back in the Old Testament. Way, way back. And it was when the, the nation of Israel was coming right up to the Promised Land. They'd been brought out of Egypt. And they were coming to the Promised Land. And Moses gathers together, One guy from each of the tribes and says, I want you guys to go into the promised land, check it out, see what it's like. Is there food there? Is it pretty or is it a desert? And what are the people like? And come back and tell us. So they go and do their thing. Caleb was one of the men. They go and do their thing. They come back and they give a report. And what they say is the food is great. Big grapes. Real big grapes. It is a land that flows with milk and honey. It's amazing. And as far as the country, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. But the people, they're huge. And they're strong. And they live in fortified cities. And if we go try to take our land, the land from them, they're going to kick our butt. We don't want to go. Don't go, Moses. Don't lead us in there. So what's the nation? What does Caleb do? Caleb went. He was with the spies. Caleb comes and he says, You know what, guys? Everything they said is true. It's a great place. The food's great. The land's great. The people are big and mean. But I think we should go because the Lord will be with us and he'll give the land to us. So did the nation listen to Caleb or did he listen to the other spies? They listened to the other spies. In fact, the nation's response to Caleb was to stone him to death. That's what they wanted to do. And the only thing that stopped them from stoning him to death, if you read the account, is it says they wanted to stone him to death. And then the glory of the Lord appeared in the temple. And they bowed down. So the Lord will protect you. You have nothing to fear. And when God heard that the people didn't want didn't to obey and they didn't believe in him, and they, weren't, they were afraid to go into the land. He cast them out into the wilderness for 40 years as punishment. And he said that none of you will live to see the promised land, except for Caleb and Joshua, because Joshua, like Caleb, said, let's go for it. So they went out into the wilderness. And Caleb and Joshua were there with the rest of the nation for 40 years, and they watched everyone die. That was the judgment that God pronounced on them. You'll all die. You won't see the promised land. Your children will. I'll lead your children into it, but you'll die. All of you who said, no, we won't fight, you'll die. So Joshua and Caleb were out in in the wilderness for 40 years with the nation. And when the time came and the 40 years was up, they came back. And God spoke to Joshua and he says, you're the leader now. Go and possess the land. Go into it. Take it. Lead the nation of Israel into there. And that's what Joshua did. He led the people into the land, the promised land. It's called the conquest of Canaan. And it's one of the most controversial things in the whole Bible. Because in the conquest of Canaan, it says they went in and killed everybody. And that means women and children. Little women and children. Helpless. Running away so they wouldn't die. They killed them. Because God told them to go possess the land. And that's what they did. They obeyed God. And after five years of that, of going in and possessing the land, God came and spoke to Joshua, and He said, "You know, you're old, and there's a lot of land left for you to, for the nation to possess, and you're too old to do it by yourself to do it. So what you need to do is you need to break up the tribes and break up the land to the and give it to each particular tribe, as I've told you already, and tell them to go conquer their land. And at that point, Caleb comes to him. And he says, you know, Joshua, he says, you know, the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God concerning you, concerning you and me at Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me to Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear. But I followed the Lord, my God, fully. So Moses swore on that day, saying, surely the land on which your foot has trodden will be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, because you followed the Lord, my God, fully. Now, behold, the Lord has let me live just as he spoke these 45 years from the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, when Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold. I'm 85 years old today. I'm an old man. But I'm still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so my strength is now. For war and for going in and for coming and going out. Now then. Right? Hinge word. Now then. Give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard that on that day that Anakim were there. The Anakim were giants who lived in big fortified cities. For you heard on that day that Anakim were there with great fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me, and I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken. So Joshua blessed him, and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, until this day. Why? Because he followed the Lord God of Israel fully. So how about it? Caleb followed God. He wanted to obey God from the very beginning and sought to do it. He came back and said, guys, we can do it. The Lord will be with us. Let's go take the land. They said no. And the Lord punished them. And he went out into the wilderness for 40 years. And then after 40 years, he went to fight for the land that God had promised him. And when he was old, old, 85 years old, he said, give me the land that's mine. I want it. Give it to me. Because he had obeyed the Lord fully. Now, it seems sort of arrogant and proud to say, I've obeyed the Lord fully. Could any of you imagine yourself saying, I've obeyed the Lord fully, right? Can you say what Paul said? I've kept the faith. Do you think of it that way? Could you ever conceive of saying that? the answer is no, you don't think of it that way. You don't think of it like that. So was Caleb right to say that? Was he right to say, give me the land because I've obeyed God fully? the answer is yes. He was right to say it. He was absolutely right to say it. So what gave him the ability to say such a thing? We know that he wasn't without sin, right? He wasn't above sin. So where did he get the nerve to say something so, so arrogant? Well, actually, we want to think he didn't mean it. He didn't actually mean, I've obeyed the God fully. I mean, he said it, but he didn't mean it. But you know what? That's arrogant of us to say, not of him to say. He was right in saying it. I've obeyed the Lord. Give me what's mine. So how did he say it? He said it by faith. He believed God when God said that he would give him the land. That's how he said it. <clears throat> so do you believe God? Do you believe, God, that he has an inheritance for you, that he's promised to you, and that he'll give you? So Paul and Caleb believed God. These men trusted the promises of God, right? Paul writes in, first, in Colossians 1, since the day we heard of it, what did they hear? They heard that the Colossians loved God, that they loved one another in the Spirit. He says, from the day that we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, And to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power. How? According to his glorious might. For the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued them from the domain of darkness and transferred them to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And Paul, upon hearing the news in Colossae, he immediately began giving thanks to God. He wasn't timid. He wasn't, well, I'm going to wait and see if that's really what's going on. He immediately gave thanks, praised God, for the work that God was doing. And that they would attain all things through God's glorious might. So what does Paul say that God did for us in that particular passage? It's not just for the Colossians, it's for us too. What did God do for us? He rescued us from the domain of darkness, right? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He rescued us. And then he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, through whom we have redemption. He redeemed us through the forgiveness of sins. He forgave us our sins. Through Christ, through Jesus' death and resurrection, he secured for us the forgiveness of sins. He secured for us our inheritance, which is heaven. So what does all this talk of resurrection in heaven have to do with 2 Corinthians 4? right? I I went on way over here and I'm talking about things that aren't even in the text. It's there, you guys. It's there. It's the whole reason Paul does what he does. It's all, he, it's all he's got. And it's all he needs. <clears throat> Remember hinge words? I talked about hinge words. When I read the passage, I said, look, look, here's a hinge word. Therefore, therefore, we do not lose heart. Paul says, that's why I don't lose heart. That's why I'm willing to endure all the things that come my way. All of the hardship, all of the suffering, all of the loss, all of the pain, all of the death. Because my hope isn't in this world. My hope isn't in this world. This isn't all I have. This isn't the end. There's a better place that God has made for me. And because of it, I'm willing to go through anything that comes my way. And I'm willing to do it joyfully. He does it because God will present us through Jesus Christ to himself, pure and spotless, without any sin. Pure and spotless, the bride of Christ. And with these promises, like I said, Paul will go through anything, anything. Now, as I said earlier, I will say one more time. Paul and Caleb, the whole cloud of witnesses that have gone before us, endured joyfully the trials that God brought to them. They went through it joyfully. And the reason they went through it joyfully was because their hope wasn't in this world. They didn't take the counterfeit. They didn't say, I'll take peace now for wrath later. I said, I'll take persecution now for rest later. And that's our example. Having the same faith, that's the example that's set for us. To obey God, to suffer the things that come, and to endure it joyfully, knowing that we have an inheritance, and it won't always be this way. It won't always be like this. There's a place where there's eternal rest. So as you go through persecutions and pain and heartache and you're surrounded by death and by all the results of sin, all the things that it causes, trust God. Believe in him. There's a place where that stuff won't be anymore. God is faithful to his word. The Lord Jesus Christ has risen.